Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Abuse is a symptom of a greater problem. Abuse is always motivated by lust for power and control. So abuse really is the symptom of something else happening. And those other things happening are grabbing power in the form of you know, racism, in the form of patriarchy, in the form of homophobia, you know, all those different things. Abuse is just the outlet, you know, just the symptom of all those other issues. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to sit down with Ashley Easter. Ashley's done some amazing work. I was checking out her blog just before uh, jumping on the interview and uh, had really just wanted to reach out and talk about some of the advocacy work that uh, she's been doing. But first, Ashley, can you just give me a little bit of context uh, and and give our audience some context about uh, your initial experiences in the independent Baptist movement? Yeah. So thank you very much for having me on the show. And been excited about this for a while since you reached out. And um, usually when I talk to people about my story, I have to like give all the like acronyms and words and what these mean. And Not here. <laughs> Our, nice my audience is well acquainted with the uh, with the IFB. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's that's awesome. That cuts out some time. Um but yes, I grew up in, you know, an IFB church. Both of my grandfathers were pastors in the denomination. One pastor grandfather was in the South, and that's where I grew up, and that's the church I went to. The other pastor grandfather was in the North. Um, I didn't see them that much. Um, they were more the kind of skirt-wearing kind of side of the family, and the ones in the South where I grew up, like, that had been a part of their life, but it was like you could wear modest pants if that kind of put you on you know, where we were on the spectrum. Um, and yeah, so, you know, all the typical stuff, very patriarchal, certainly abuse and cover up that happened in, you know, my community happened to me. Um, I was homeschooled. 
So I know some people are homeschooled or they go to approved Christian school, but, you know, I was homeschooled. My brothers and sisters were, um, and yeah, that was my life. And I define my experience as being very much like a cult because I really didn't know that many people outside of this community. And um, anybody that I did know either went to a church or had beliefs that were very similar, or we just kept kind of our distance from them. So lots of isolation um, and, you know, the whole uh, glass house thing when you're the pastor's granddaughter and everybody has high hopes and expectations that I've dashed. (laughs) So, um, okay. So you just used the word cult. Okay. Which is, I mean, that word is a, is a big trigger point in conversation with, uh, with people who are in the movement who, you know, um, and I get it all the time because I've, I've had times I've used that word to, to describe it. I've had times where I've said, you know, well, not all of them, I would say the movement broadly is, but you know, I, where I'm at personally is I think that the movement itself is at, at the very least cultish. I would say that at um, that's a very generous is like at the very least it's cultish. I would say that the churches who are not cultish tend to be the outliers in the movement. So there are right. good churches, but I would say that they are the exception as opposed to the rule. Um, but again, we're just saying that word cult and, 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 Again, for people listening who attend churches like this, they're like, what does that mean? Why are you calling us that? Uh, so so just really quick, when you're using the word cult, what what are you indicating? Like what what are the the symptoms, I guess, of a cultish environment? Right, right. And first of all, like I'm I'm talking about my perceived experience, the way I right. experienced my life growing up in there. And so other people may use different terms, different words. Um other people may just have a completely different perspective. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of those perspectives are wrong, you know, just different people experience different things. Um, Yeah, so for me, when I look at a cult, I'm looking for um, either a leader or a group of leaders that are really um, look to for guidance and direction in the community. Another big clue I'm looking for in a cult is, there's an us against them mentality. So, you know, we are the righteous ones. We are the chosen ones. We are the ones that are set apart and given the divine word of God through the King James Bible. Um, And everybody else is, um, you know, either evil outright or at the very least kind of backslidden, less spiritual. And so if you are really a good Christian, you'd be pretty much like us. Um, So that us um, us against them mentality The other thing about cults is what happens when you leave? And um, this can be, there can be varied experiences in the same church or same community of what it's like to leave, but that is usually dependent on how um, deep you were into the movement. So um, there were people who left our church community and I only heard bad things about them. You know, they're rebellious, they're walking away from the Lord. Um, They're very much... um, shunned, at least ideologically, you know, there might've been some love bombing to try to bring them back first, but, you know, they were pretty much, you know, outcast as a heretic. And later met them, it was like, oh no, they just experienced abuse in the church or, oh no, they just had a disagreement and were cool with Christian rock music, you know, (laughs) something, something like that. Um, Other people who maybe aren't as deep in the cult um, are not, are maybe just new members, don't have a lot of money, time, or influence invested in it. They may be able to leave more smoothly, but if you're kind of in the core center of it, like I was, when you leave, 
it doesn't go well. And in a safe, healthy community, you should be able to walk away for ideological differences. You should be able to leave environments whenever you want without punishment. Now, there might be natural consequences that happen, you know, maybe you're not as close to people anymore, but there shouldn't be, you know, this demonization of a person just because they decide to think, act, and live a little bit differently. So there's a lot of different markers of a cult. And in my um, free ebook, Cults Hidden in Plain Sight, I go through a lot of them and lean on different experts in the in the cult um, awareness community. But uh, those are some of the big ones, you know, having a leader or a group of leaders, us against them mentality, and what happens when you leave? And oh, another big one is what happens when you ask questions? <laughs> how are how are those treated? Right, right. Yeah, no, um, cold sit in plain sight is is the first thing that I checked out um, when I visited your site a few months ago, I think, um, is when I first found out about you. And yeah, it's a fantastic resource. It's like, it, it's pretty short, but it's very packed with a lot of good information and links to some other resources as well. Um, so I definitely recommend that. Uh, you, you kind of alluded to the fact that your specific experience was, uh, you know, very cultish and, and, you know, hearing your story, at least in the fragments that I've, I've gotten to listen to, um, that definitely seems to be the case. Um, you know, I have people on, um, you know, myself, I, I had a, a lesser experience, you know, like I, I was, you know, it was more restrictive with what you could do and, and, and dress, but, but for you, it seems like your story, you know, has a, a couple more sinister elements to it, um, as opposed to, you know, you couldn't wear certain clothes or you couldn't do things like this. And as early on as being an infant. So can you just talk a little bit, just touch briefly on kind of your early childhood memories growing up within the, uh, the IFB and what are some of the things that maybe stood out, um, as you were, as you were growing up? Sure. So there's, you know, a lot of things and I, sometimes it's hard for me to sell down my entire story to, you know, a podcast or even like right. a book or anything like that. Um, because there's so many different elements and layers to it. But, um, one of the maybe most unique experiences that I had that kind of started, I was just a child. Um, and these are stories that were told to me by my family, by my parents, um, and, uh, you know, things that I don't necessarily remember, but these were stories that came up quite a bit in my childhood. And that was when I was born, um, because I was a woman, you know, I already had a strike against me because, you know, patriarchy. Um, and then uh, I was told as soon as I came out of the womb, I had like these big dark eyes. And I was told that I think it was my grandmother said, and she looked at us and she was thinking in her mind, I can conquer you and you and you. And like probably what I was doing was just like, oh, wow, I'm outside of the womb now. Like this is different. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking or if I was able to think that young, but they would ascribe different um, ideas and personifications to me as an infant that weren't really practical. So you know, that's just day one, being born. I'm already being seen as I'm looking who I can conquer uh, in the family. And then I was told that I used to cry a lot as an infant. And 
I don't know, maybe I'd colic. I'm not sure. You know, babies cry. That's that's a thing. But my family was so disturbed by the crying that they believed I was possessed by a demon. And um, my dad did this whole prayer slash exorcism kind of thing. And they told me as a baby, I just arched my back and I screamed loud. And that's what they thought when the demon left me. And then I felt soundly asleep and I didn't cry again like that. So things like that, that I can't remember, but as a child, you're being told you come out of the womb, you're looking for a fight. We think you've got a demon in you. And then you're continually told through your childhood as you're trying to assert your independence as children do that, no, that's rebellion. And rebellion is like the sin of witchcrafts and witches are really close to the devil. So like you're really crossing that line, getting close to the devil by disobeying. Um, so there were a lot of things that that total depravity theology was there and this assumption that even from infancy, you could have something evil about you or something evil inside of you. Um, and then just the skepticism that you're treated as a child when people believe things like that. Um, and I was a, a little bit of a willful child, but you know, I think those are the general stages of development. You've got to differentiate yourself from the caregivers in your life. If you read child development, that is normal. Um, but at the age of four years old, my grandfather took me into um, the basement bedroom and he locked me in there for about four hours and had kind of a quote unquote submission session. And I won't go into all the details there, but it was um, something that was profoundly changing in my life. I went through the different stages of trauma, you know, the fight, flight, freeze and fawn. Um, and it was a moment where I realized like, I can't have a will anymore. My will has been broken. And if I'm going to survive in the system, I've got to try to be submissive. And from that point, you know, my personality, everything changed. And I really tried to be that submissive girl that fit in, despite having my own thoughts, my own will and some leadership qualities about me, which were just certainly not um, welcomed as a woman in the community. Um, I'm happy to share other details, sure. but I, I think that was a story you're alluding to. Yeah, no. Yeah, that was a, it was a unique one, because it's not something I mean, I'll definitely want to dive into breaking the will of a child. That's something that is is very common in a lot of IFB circles. Um, but the exorcism stood out because it's something that I, I haven't heard much of. I mean, that was something, um, you know, it, it's something that gets met with varying, you know, responses when you would hear people talk. And I, I remember um, I was in the back of my church growing up and I remember one of the guest speakers uh, was talking to someone and he told a story about um he told a story. He's a well-known speaker. I won't name him here just because it was a, it was weird, um, but it, it's not really relevant, but he, he basically was telling a story about like a pastor who was dealing with the demon at his church and he cast it out and it went into the nursery and they heard laughing from the nursery or something. My. It was a weird story, but that's yeah. the only time I ever heard something like that laid out. Most people were like, you know, it's not something that really happens now. It's, you know, that was a, you know, it, it's just a very, it's very interesting how different people deal with it, but it, that part stood out specifically. I thought that was a unique element to your story. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it raises the question in my mind, um, and this goes into breaking the well of a child, who were the influences on your grandparents in these churches? Like, were there, uh, you know, Michael and Debbie Pearl's name comes up when you think about, you know, 
discipline and things like that with children. The mother needs to understand if she takes away her husband's authority, even by a face, even by making like a pitiful look appeal to her husband, she is taking away all authority from that child's life. If that child is going to have authority, mother, you got to let that man be the authority. I'm going to get this rod. If he screams too hard with the first five, gets hysterical, wait. You know, a little psychological terror is sometimes more effective than the pain. Thumping him on the head? You're worried about that? Give me another question. We talked about that. Carry him home and, and train him. Give me another one. Father who will not take his part in discipline, when he does discipline, it's out of anger. Make love to him. If your husband is an angry man, make love. Get rid of his frustration. Make him happy. All right, another question. Sweetie pie. <laughs> when using the rod as a training tool, how hard should the reinforcement be? You know, who were some of those main influences that kind of created that environment? Sure. So, you know, I'm I'm not sure everybody that my parents and grandparents had read, um, but I do know Bill Gothard was somebody that, you know, they looked up to in the beginning and a lot of his teachings. I think um, later down the road as our church progressed, this is probably more like when I was, you know, 16, 17-ish, our church turned kind of hardcore Calvinist, which was an interesting transition thing. But they started reading like, um, what was his name? Paul, Ch Paul or Ted Tripp. I think it was Ted Tripp's Shepherding a Child's Heart, which I've read now and it's kind of appalling. Um, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure where all their influences came from, but I do know the name Bill Gothard came up um, and that my parents had gone through some type of a marital, premarital training thing, I believe. This is just for my trying to recall. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of it was you just hear other preachers. And my grandfather, he was never the lead pastor. He was always like, you know, a little bit lower down the totem pole. Eventually he got to like the second pastor up, but um, I'm guessing a lot of that influence came from those pastors because my grandparents were not very religious um, until a little bit later in their lives. So my mom didn't start going to this church. So she was probably like her, I don't know, early teen years, I would guess. Um, so I'm thinking a lot of the influence maybe came directly from the church. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, and that's, I think, pretty common too. And that, I guess that speaks to the cultish element too, is that, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the, the leadership in the church is doing is usually what everyone else will try to follow suit yeah. and do the same. Um, so you mentioned kind of recognizing that, that moment that like, okay, I just got to submit and, yeah. you know, be what they want me to be to basically make this stop. And, th and that's something that comes up when I'm talking to people in the troubled teen industry, when I'm talking to people in a, abusive homes, like that is a common, a common thing. Um, so what took you from that phase to the, I'm just going to, you know, be where they can't see me. I can't mess up if I'm quiet and, and submissive to, okay, I need to start questioning some of this. Some of this isn't quite right. What, what initiated that switch? Um, you mean like later in life when I started leaving the group? Is right. this out tracking? Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
I was always, I always had a lot of leadership capabilities. And I think that if I had been a man, I would have been one of those preacher boys. Like I'm actually an ordained minister. I don't know if you can see my shirt, preacher. <laughs> so that's what I always wanted. Uh, roles and stuff, but I couldn't because I was a woman. So I was always trying to like fit myself into these different boxes where I can maybe express some of my skills. So right. you can't preach a sermon, but you can sing a mm. sermon. So I would sing in church, <laughs> things like right. that that don't make sense. You can't preach, but you can give a testimony. Um, so all those things were happening. And I had a blog um, that I called stay-at-home daughter because I was a part of the stay-at-home daughter movement within uh, the community. Are you familiar with that term? I'm not. Okay. So um, backing up, you know, you've got the IFB community and then um, there's the homeschool community and the homeschool community has small little segments in it. Some of them can be liberal, some are moderate, some are conservative, some are religious, some are not. Um, but we were in a segment called the patriarchy movement. And then inside of that movement is the quiverful movement, basically where you have as many children as possible. So you can shoot them out like arrows in the That's, world. to Yeah. The Gothard that. kind of theology, yeah. the Duggars yeah. are associated mm -hmm. with that. Yeah. But the stay at home daughter movement is kind of something that was created. That was like, um, well, if adult women who are married are supposed to submit to their husbands, like, what the heck do we do with unmarried women like that are adults we can't just have them not submitting to anybody. And so the stay at home daughter movement is basically, you know, you submitting to your father till he gives you away in marriage to somebody else to submit to. Um, so I was submissive to the point that I was writing a blog about this. Hmm. And so I had, you know, a couple thousand people following me and I was very vocal about all of that. Um, and just being in this movement, uh, we also believed in courtship instead of dating. And so I got into a courtship when I was younger and it turned into a situation that was abusive, very emotionally abusive. There were a lot of different elements that happened there and just very toxic, very damaging, something that was really a shaking point in my life. Um, and when I finally got out of that, thankfully, I didn't marry the man. Um, I just fell into this depression, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks, anxiety, you know, the whole deal. Um, the depression was really strong and all those things. And after I started pulling out of that, that lasted about a year at its heaviest point. I was just kind of like ready to kind of look at maybe some other things a little bit. So there was like a tiny bit of me that was open, but mostly I was still shut down. I met a woman who briefly attended our church and she invited me to the coffee shop where she worked. And there was a guy there that was a Christian and he liked to talk theology and she introduced me to him. And I love to talk theology, but um, his, you know, theological, perspective was equality for women. So egalitarianism. And so we had kind of this little argument about it. And I was shocked. I never met a man who believed in equality for women. And I'm a pastor's granddaughter. You know, I know this better than you do. I write a blog to, you know, 3000 women, you know, what the heck you're trying to lead me astray. Um, so I kind of tried to push off the relationship and the conversation, but he just kept kind of poking at me and just like sending me messages on Facebook and stuff. And finally, I realized I was going to have to debate him, um, which I see the irony now trying to debate submission 
with a man, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but right. didn't see that at the time. Um, but basically, the debate didn't have to happen because um, to be a good debater, you've got to know the other person's point of view better than they do. So I researched egalitarianism and equality for women, and it convinced me. And I was like, wow, I've been lied to my whole life. <laughs> and um, then beginning to see the connections between patriarchy and abuse, and um, then seeing the other theologies that were really toxic and harmful, and just realizing what had happened to me was number one, not normal. Number two, very toxic. And, you know, I had to get out of here. Um, so that happened around 21 for me. Um, started getting really wild and rebellious and, you know, listening to Taylor Swift and swing dancing and movie theaters, you know. Straight downhill. Uh, yeah. j just before you move on, I'm just curious, what were some of those resources that you read um, that helped kind of switch your position from being very, you know, patriarchal, complementarian, I guess you could say, to right. considering another position. Yeah. So I'd read all the stuff, you know, John Piper, John MacArthur, the, what is it, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, like yeah. all that stuff. I knew those things like the back of my hand because I've been writing about it for years and right. sourcing those things. Um, but what I started looking at was, um, people like Sarah Bessie, who wrote Jesus Feminist, reading her book, um, Christians for Biblical Equality International. I would say I'm a bit more progressive than them now, but they have a really, um, you know, they, they use a lot of scripture to be able to show their point of equality for women. So that was super helpful. Um, at the time, Rachel Held Evans, um, before her passing, she'd written a book, I think a year of biblical womanhood that was transformational. Um, and unfortunately, I can't support her anymore because of some abuse scandals. But um, Christine mm -hmm. Kane, um, yeah. she was the first woman preacher I'd ever seen. And I was like, wow, right. actually, women can do this. You know? right. um, so all those things just challenged my idea of what feminists were like. Um, and, you know, my notions had come from what my family had told me about feminists, and they were just not like this at all. And right. there's so much more logic on that side of equality. Right, right. So after studying it, you kind of start becoming positioned. You, you said you started kind of going, you know, going off the deep end. You're listening to Taylor Swift. You're doing a little bit <laughs> yeah. of dancing. Uh, what was the trajectory from there? And, and what was the response from kind of your family when, when that <laughs> switch started happening? Yeah. Well, um, they were not pleased. My family was not pleased at all. And it was a very dark time in my life because I was still living at home. Um, I hadn't gone to college. I had a job as a nanny. So I was bringing in, you know, a little bit of money. Um, really didn't know people outside the community to reach out to for support. So basically I'm looking at the internet and maybe a few support groups there. Um, starting to tell my family, I'm thinking differently about this and, you know, maybe alcohol isn't the cardinal sin and, you know, just all the things that fundamentalist parents hate to hear, like those were the questions I had and things I started shifting on. And so, you know, there was a lot of upset with them. And I think we had about eight hours of like really intense conversations. I want to say it was like four hours at a time and just them and my grandparents like kind of trying to convince me otherwise. And, um, it, that was very, very hard because I, I never experienced my parents in 
my grandparents in that time in my life as being um, so like I'd always been on their side right. as a teen, you know, for the most so part. So now it's switched where you're over here and now right. you're in the firing line as opposed to right. being with them, you know, blasting yeah. with the, the liberals, <laughs> exactly. you know? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And so that was very confusing and just amazing how quickly that could switch. Um, but I kind of did sort of an ultimatum. I was like, I know you all want me to live at home and I'm really not in a position to leave, but if you don't start treating me as an adult, I'm going to get in my crappy car and I'm going to leave. <laughs> and so we got sort of this um, agreement where in the house, I would obey their rules. But when I was in my car driving away, like I could do my own stuff. It didn't really work that well, as you might imagine. But I did get to start dating because I had my own car and I just wouldn't tell them those things. And pretty quickly I met um, my husband, Will, and he, you know, we hit it off from the start. I knew he was the one. He was very supportive of my abuse experiences, very supportive of me being an equal. We got married within eight months, and that was kind of my physical rescue, even though, you know, ideologically it already really started to change. And then from there, being in a safe place, I was able to continue reevaluating my experience and eventually get into advocacy work for others. Right. Right. What kicks are, so I, I always am curious because there's, there's two types of reactions when you leave a situation like this, there's the people that get in the car, you know, it's always a crappy car. You, you got to get in a crappy <laughs> car, you drive away, you never look in the rear view mirror, like you're out and like, thank God I'm out of here. But then there's other people, most of the people I have on the show who they're driving away. And then, you know, when they're good, they drive back and they get other people and drive them out with them. And so they start doing yeah. advocacy work. They start, you know, reaching out to people who are, who have been hurt by these movements, start reason. Some even start reasoning with people who, you know, left and, and they know they need help. So what is it that, that sparked that desire to be like, okay, I'm out of this. This was a crazy period of life. I need to go help somebody else. What, what was that? Well, I had that old blog, which I, published an apology about, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I was wrong. I am so sorry, everybody. Um, and then I started a new one and I kind of started writing about, you know, my new thoughts and ideas and some of the experiences that I'd had, some abuse that I experienced. And I had like hundreds of people start to reach out to me. Um, this was back in, I don't know, I think I started the blog like 2015, maybe early 2016, probably 2015. So a lot of these abuse blogs um, and advocacy conversation, it was not really happening as much as it is today. And so I had all these people telling me such similar stories and it wasn't just IFB, it was other kinds of church communities and like such similarities. Um, and they all felt alone and isolated and like they were weird or off or it was just them. And I'm like, no, hundreds of you are telling me the same story, basically. You are not alone. I know that for a fact. And just kind of feeling the sense of uh, duty. Um, I also think my intuition kicked in there. Um, and I was just like, we've got to start a conference um, to get all these people in the same room so they know they're not alone. And, you know, talk about these things, get experts and mental health professionals and lawyers and, you know, all the rest to kind of be in this conversation. And so never having thrown an event like that, you know, I just kind of followed my gut and intuition and 
did that with my husband's support and yeah, we sold out our first event and we, um, have had an event every year since this past year, we did it online, you know, 2020 because of COVID, but that was our fifth event. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. So with these events, what all are you doing? Is it specifically independent Baptists? Are you dealing with just people who've been in, you know, cults and in abusive environments? Like what's kind of the focus of these? Right. So it started out very much, um, you know, I still identify as, you know, maybe culturally Christian is probably how I put it. Um, but I was still a lot more so in the beginning. And so we focused a lot on faith communities. And that's something that we will always continue to focus on as an organization, um, not just IFB, but just church communities, because particularly in the evangelical sector, like there's SNAP, you know, doing stuff in the Catholic sector, yeah. but in the evangelical s- sector, you know, there wasn't really a lot going on there um, at the time. But as we've kind of grown, we've broadened it to, you know, people who are, you know, don't identify as Christian, people who maybe had a uh, faith experience um, in some kind of community that was negative and harmful and abusive, and maybe they don't identify with a religion anymore. Um, some are atheists, agnostics, some have changed face, you know, the whole gambit. But right. um, we talk about cults, we talk about domestic violence, and um, really we're kind of focused on institutional abuse. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I had um, I had seen you had done your so that was the last one that that's where Leah Remini was at, right? She was yeah, she yeah, yeah. That was that was um, I was telling you off mic, but um, yeah, I was like, I saw your poster, I was like, I am so jealous. I was like, I was like looking at your <laughs> at your list, I was like, that is so cool. Um, so yeah, it's gotten really large. Then it's got it's getting a really a lot of really good traction, which is which is awesome. Um, yeah, so thankful. Like this year, like I said, we did it online. We did 30 days of courage instead of like one weekend when you're yeah. in person. And Leah Remini, Jonathan Sheck, um, Sarah Ann Mass, some other great yeah. people. Um, and I think we had like over 700 people in the group and just awesome. really thankful to be able to offer something and for the voices of, you know, these leaders that were willing to speak. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I know. So like you mentioned snap and, and I bring up snap quite a bit when people talk about why, why I focused on the IFB and I was like, well, right. the Catholic <laughs> church has snap. What does the IFB have? Like, what does it honestly, and like evangelicalism, I would say like they have like grace, you know, they've got uh, with Boston and like, they've got, they've got yeah. that, but really there's not for, for the more fundamentalist side of Christianity, there's nobody doing this. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and, and so I guess my question would be, why do you think it is that, you know, obviously it's been seen that there's a need in the Catholic church. It's been seen that sure. like the Southern Baptists need something. It's been very clear the last year that the Southern Baptists need something to happen, <laughs> uh, radical to change their trajectory. Right. Um, but why do you think it is that like the independent Baptist movement specifically has taken so long for somebody to say, Hey, let's deal with this. Cause it's been an issue for decades now. Um, right. As long as, I mean, as long as the, the Catholic church scandals have been found out to be going on, I mean, they're going mm-hmm. on deep back into the early 1900s. So yeah. why do you think there's that delay there? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And a little plug here. I'm actually the vice president on the board of SNAP. So I love SNAP and I'm really oh, thankful amazing. for their work. Um, they um, they really have been a pioneer just for survivors in general. And I can't take credit for that because, you know, I'm a newbie, young face. <laughs> but um, right. yeah, but no, that's a good question. Um, I think for one, the abuse we can track in the Catholic Church goes back even farther than the, the 90s. Um, we actually have records in the 11th century of you know Catholic Church abuse. Um, so I think because that's an institution that's been around longer, there's been time to build some momentum. Additionally, with something like the Catholic Church or a lot of Protestant churches, some evangelical churches, mainlines, um, there's more of a structure. And so even even the Southern Baptist Convention, which I protested outside of like so many times, oh, those people, um, they would say, you know, all the churches are independent, but they're really not. I yeah. mean, They've got a convention every year, and that's just a legal loophole, in my opinion. But, you know, there's a structure, so there's something to point a target at. With IFB churches, there are maybe groups of them that kind of mesh together and, you know, some regional leaders, but it is so informal that um, it's really hard to shoot at anything in particular. So it's easy to build up a rally when a conference or convention is happening and this is the representation of the entire denomination the fundamentalist baptists they don't have one thing that everybody you know wraps around and is representative of them so i think it's kind of like whack-a-mole where you know you can address one church but then you know there's seventeen thousand that pop up you know and yeah. you you have to do individual so the advocacy is you're spread more thin because you mm -hmm. have to deal with it individually versus as a structure. Right. Yeah. They're split up more by, because uh, I've, I've, I've had a couple of guests on, I've asked about, you know, cause I have my, my opinions of how it's split up. And, and I think that there's definitely mm -hmm. independent Baptists. I think independent is a misnomer. They're much more connected than they would like to admit. Um, but, you know, I, I think the closest way to saying that they're affiliated is through Bible college to like the, the Bible mm -hmm. college that their leadership yeah. is from is usually that club that they're at the conferences they right. go to, they all stem from that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is a harder target to hit, but it's also obviously, I mean, like I mentioned, spirit of fear, the star telegrams article kind of shows how connected they really are. And mm -hmm. it, it goes pretty deep. Yeah. Um, so for you now, I mean, obviously you're addressing this at a, at a larger scale. You're, you're taking on, I mean, you've released resources to help people identify cults. You've been, you know, working with survivors of abuse. Um, I, as we're kind of sitting here in the, the me too kind of church to era, the conversations yeah. louder than ever. Um, I, I talked with someone today who started this stuff back in the seventies and she's like, yeah. I never thought this would be a national conversation. Right. Um, right. What do you hope the conversation steers to over the next couple of years. Like now we know it happens. Like we know mm -hmm. abuse happens. We know that, you know, child abuse, we know that rape happens, but we have to have some direction to take that conversation. What, what are you hoping the, the conversation shifts to in the next couple of years? There's a couple answers for that. If the church was to stay intact as is, I think the answer would be, there's got to be accountability 
There has to be some way to track these predators. There has to be a database. And I want to plug the um, Baptist um, accountability. accountability database, which my friend um, Megan Benninger and her husband started. Um, there has to be a way to track these predators moving from church to church. There has to be um, a way to hold not only the predators themselves, but those who covered up the abuse accountable. You know, that's got to start with trainings and teaching. So if the churches were to stay as structured, you know, I think that's that's the answer is the accountability, the trainings, the teachings, people turn in predators in, um, not allowing them back in the pulpits when they get out of jail, those types of things. Right. Education on sexuality and consent from a young age for children, all of those things. So that's one answer. But I don't believe that the church is going to stay structured um, for much longer. I don't think we're going to see structured religion the way it is in the next 20 years. Um, mm. I think with things like the global pandemic, we've seen that we don't need a building to be able to connect with other people. Um, and there are certainly some communities that fight that, but um, they're kind of in the small numbers, I think. Um, and the way we have social media, people are popping up with Instagram churches. Let right. me just plug LaVon Proverbs Briggs and her Instagram church. Um, she's a black woman preacher and it's amazing, very liberation mixed with black spirituality. Like anyway, that's where I go to church. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think institutions are going to stay the same hmm. for the next 20 years. I think they have to dissolve. And I think that's really the only way we're going to fix this in the end. Um, I've worked for years to try to fix it within the structures as they are, but um, I don't see any movement to speak of, honestly. Mm. Right. Yeah. We mentioned some of the more formal, it's easy to talk about like Southern Baptist convention. And I know there's many people like Rachel Den Hollander has been like, mm -hmm. you know, trying to push, you know, for a lot of changes and how they deal with yeah. things. I know uh, Boz, I mentioned Boz Javidian is trying to do a lot. Um, you know, why do you think there's this hesitancy to make changes? It, it seems, it, it seems common sense, right? It seems like we've got this very clear problem that it seems like the solution's very clear, you know, it seems mm -hmm. to, you know, believe survivors sure up the weaknesses in the church and, you know, right. prevent it from happening while also not casting out everyone who's been hurt. Um, what, what resistances are you seeing most commonly from even larger denominations like the Southern Baptists? Well, yeah, I've, you know, like I said, I've done several protests with like the first such a time as this rally. Cheryl Summers is one who founded and leads that up. I've um, gone into J.D. Greer, the president of Southern Baptist Convention, his church and talked with his second and been, I've, I've talked to him, but he, <laughs> he doesn't want to see me snuck up on him at Starbucks one time. Anyway, <laughs> but when you look at abuse, Abuse is a symptom of a greater problem. Abuse is always motivated by lust for power and control. So abuse really is the symptom of something else happening. And those other things happening are grabbing power in the form of, you know, racism, in the form of patriarchy, in the form of homophobia, you know, all those different things. Um, abuse is just the outlet, you know, just the symptom of all those other 
issues. So if the church really wants to deal with abuse, they've got to deal with their sexism problem. And I'm just going to use that because I'm a woman and that's what I'm I've most been affected by in the church, though, like I mentioned, racism, homophobia, all those things. Um, they are unwilling to release their grip on power and give over some shared power to women in the church or to people of color equally, you know, those types of things. Um, so when you're asking someone to stop abuse in their church, you're not, not just looking at this child who's been abused, but to really fix it, you have to address the whole structure and something like the Southern Baptist Convention, they were built with the specific purpose of keeping women and people of color in line. They were built because of slavery. And so when you have systems that are built on things like that, I mean, you can't really expect <laughs> there not to be a power it's a grab. foundational, yeah, foundational yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's disheartening because that was where, um, I think this is common for many, like I made the jump from the IFB to the SBC and, mm -hmm. and pretty quickly after making that jump, it's like, oh, things look pretty similar over here yeah, too. Yeah, not, not different. Um, yeah, not, <laughs> not super different. And, you know, obviously the Paige Patterson situation, you've got, um, there, there's several names you could plug in there. And it's just been frustrating. And and for myself as a, as a believer, you know, my wife and I have struggled with that. It's like, where do you go? Like, where, where do you, you know, you get raised with this, you know, go to church, you get raised with this, you know, and, and we're now parents, we've got a three-year-old. We're like, we mm -hmm. really, you know, we still believe what we believe and we still want our daughter sure. to, to get to, you know, in, you know, get some of that, that, that we're experiencing. But then it's also like, I don't want to put my kid in a nursery in a church. Yeah. Like that's the last yeah. place I want to, that's I want to trust with my kid. <laughs> right. And so it's just a really, it's a really frustrating and difficult thing. And it's, it's, it's doubly frustrating when you see you know, guys like JD Greer come in and you, mm -hmm. you know, positioned as like this, this voice of hope and change. And yeah. he seemed like he was going to be steering the ship in a different <laughs> direction. And, you know, and I, again, oh. I haven't, I haven't personally interacted, but like, you know, even if he did truly want to focus it on that, which I don't see that he has really focused it on it. Mm -hmm. I don't know that any one man is going to have the power to move that entire denomination. It, yeah. It's like you said, it's fundamentally excusing the pun fundamentally yeah. you know flawed in the same way the independent baptist movement as long as they're going to be heralding guys like jack hiles jacks yep. you know all of these names you want to throw in jack treber um you know it, it's going to be really difficult to see any true change because right. their their old paths their their fun foundations are so structurally damaged yeah. if the foundation is rotten you can't just you can't just try to fix the symptoms like it's that yeah. that doesn't work. And that's why I think um, and I don't say this as an incitement to violence. Let me be clear about that. But like just metaphorically, very clear right now, that's not. <laughs> very clear metaphorically, you know, I think these structures have to burn down to the ground and something new has to be built. But, you know, as a person who is very influenced by Jesus, like resurrection is part of Christianity. So mm -hmm. I don't see that as the death of the way of Jesus. I see that as, you know, maybe a, a much needed clearing yeah. of, of things. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, um, I used to have a lot more hope that, that things could be changed while the structures remain. But after being in it for years, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard. It's hard work to I resonate with that because it's hard to I've been doing this now much less than you. I've, I've been doing this for about a year with the show. I've been talking about it for since I left. I've been talking about it yeah. with people on a one to one basis. But now, I mean, I'm talking I've talked with hundreds of people in the last mm-hmm. year who, you know, same story, different church, California, Nevada, North Dakota, yep. you know, Virginia, same stories, same type of environment. Um, and SBC. Now I have people reach out. I have people who've reached out who are like, oh, I'm, you know, Seventh-day Adventist. I'm Catholic. My mm-hmm. story resonates exactly with all the stories yep. on the show. And again, I still think my focus has to be IFB because I think there's nobody sure. doing that. Um, and I think it's important people stay focused. Like, you know, SNAP really does a great job with with Catholic churches. I'd be totally lost in that, in that arena. Um, but yeah, it is. It's very disheartening, especially... Like I, I've told people this, but I'm like, this would be a lot easier if I was not a Christian. Like it would be very easy to say, man, the church is just like a horrible place. Right. And right. Now I'm like, I'm, it's doubly frustrating because I'm saying, yeah, it's, it's a really horrible place right now. And mm-hmm. also I know what it's supposed to look like and it doesn't look anything like that. And so it's, it's this very frustrating position to be in. Right. And uh, I'm sure you feel that as well with, with what you're doing. Yeah. And one thing that I found for myself, and I don't know, maybe this will help somebody who's listening. Um, I think we've been, I think there are some things that as spiritual people we crave and that we want and we know can be done the right way. Um, Community connection, some type of, you know, correspondence with the divine um, learning expansion about spiritual things. Um, There's a variety of things that churches offer that I think we we crave as humans, at least most of us. I'm not going to speak for atheists and you know people who don't identify that way, but I think most of us crave those things, and those are good. Um, for myself, while I've taken a step back from like institutional brick and mortar church, I've kind of identified those things that I want and need in my life, and then I've looked for other ways to fulfill them. So maybe that's a YouTube video. Maybe that is, you know, going to my friend LaVon's, you know, Instagram church. Maybe that is, um, you know, without COVID, you know, getting together with some friends and talking theology. Maybe it's getting out in nature. Maybe it's, you know, playing with some Oracle cards, you know, whatever it is. um, I think that's going to be really individual. But I think it's been ingrained that there's only one way to receive those things that we innately want and need as spiritual beings. And there's actually a lot of different platforms. We don't just have to get it from a brick and mortar church. And maybe we can create a brick and mortar church that provides those things safely. But in the interim, I'm always looking for ways to fulfill those needs um, and kind of being open to un, you know, unusual places that I wouldn't have looked, you know, growing up. Right. Right. Yeah. It, I had that conversation with a church planner, a friend of mine, I won't name him because I don't know if he'd appreciate our conversation, <laughs> but, um, but you know, we were just talking about, and it was in the early stages of COVID and it was like, man, like things are changing, you know, um, whether COVID stuck around or not, you know, the, the reality was, you know, there's a lot of people who realize, like you said, we don't need a building, a multi-million right. dollar building with, you know, 800 seats and a sound system. And, and, um, you know, I was just saying, I was like, man, the things that are supposed to be in a church, you know, the accountability, the, the community, the, um, you know, hearing from God's word, I was like, all of that stuff doesn't require the system that we have in place. Um, no. And, 
And um, again, like, not to say like, I, I think that, you know, I have a lot of friends who are church planners, a lot of friends who pastor churches and I get it. And I, and I, again, there's a lot of people I know who are great exceptions to the norm. Um, but yeah, I sit there and I think, man, most church services that, you know, you go to, you go in, you listen to the sermon, you run to get your kid out of the nursery and then you jet home. It's like, I'm just going to a live podcast recording. Like I'm really going to go hear someone speak. Um, that's pretty much it. That's why people say, I go, I love the pastor sermons. And then mm-hmm. you go and then you hang out with your real friends. And I, and mm-hmm. for, a, you know, for a long time, it's like, I've got my two or three people that I tell everything to. I tell them, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm struggling with. I tell them where I'm at. And, yeah. and, and then I've got the people I listen to sermons from. And then, mm-hmm. you know, so I think the future of the church is going to look a lot like this. I mean, I think it's going to be, yeah, I agree. It's going to be people podcasting. It's going to be, you know, a church planner, people who want to get the the message out, you know, mm-hmm. can literally sit there, pay 15 bucks a month to host a podcast. They, right. they put it out into the world and then look at the small group saying it's kind of already happened. I think the small groups kind of indicate how the church has changed. People mm-hmm. go to Starbucks with their actual community that actually yeah. know them as opposed to here's 800 people. And like this lady's <laughs> exactly. looking at me because my daughter's crying, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah. it's like, it's just a totally different thing. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, we'll see. I mean, COVID definitely accelerated a lot of things, but I, I think that's yeah. one thing that is going to radically change how the church looks moving forward. And I think it'll turn that top down structure of these people at the top have all authority and power you know, really on its head, because if anybody can preach a sermon on their podcast or on Instagram, like people are going to not like, it's going to level the playing field Mm -hmm. and you're going to actually have to put good quality content out versus just people being in the habit of coming to this church and thinking of you as this, you know, godlike figure, like when it's podcasts and Instagram, like, if that was a bad sermon, nobody's going to show and people are going to let you know. And again, I think that's where the, the biblical literacy and the, and the actual, like, that's where the cultish kind of environment can exist. You have to be able to say, okay, it's a marketplace of ideas. These people are sharing it. You know, where is my listener going to end mm-hmm. up based on this conversation? Right. Yeah, no. definitely. Definitely. So, so, um, yeah, kind of, kind of wrapping up here. I mean, in the, this might tie in with what we just talked about, but I know, um, I know you've got a ton of resources dealing with a ton of different topics. If someone was to go to ashleyeaster.com right now, and they were to get one of your resources to check out, what would you recommend to them and why? Okay. Um, that's a hard one. Cause I have different ones for different people. So if I could just do like my hot take for three of them, sure. Um, yeah. On my book page, I've got the cult book. It's a free downloadable ebook that you can get. Um, that could be of interest. I've got um, on that page my book, The Courage Coach, a practical friendly guide on how to heal from abuse. And um, that's reasonably priced. It's kind of something you'd hand to a person who either has somebody in their life that they feel like might be in an abusive situation and you want to get like some first steps of how to maybe help them and understand or to somebody who's like, huh, this might be abuse. If you're giving it to somebody who might be in an abusive situation, make sure you're discreet and do that safely. Um, The other thing on my website, I'm not offering it right now. I kind of do two different things. So I've got my advocacy work, which is partly on Ashley Easter dot com but also courage 365.org has to do work with intuition and kind of helping people tap into their intuition because that's 
one way that I broke free from the cult is really trusting my gut instead of mm-hmm. what everybody else in the community was telling me. So that kind of work can also be found on my website and on Instagram. I do more of that kind of woo-woo spirituality stuff. So gotcha. yes, Perfect. all the things. just download everything check it out but uh yeah just head over to ashleyeaster.com ashley thank you so much for for coming on and sharing and i I really appreciate uh just the perspective you brought to the conversation and i look forward to seeing what you do over the next couple months and years thank you so much i'm really appreciative that you have this platform and that you invite me on have a great one thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast if you appreciated the content on the show Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.